Hey guys, welcome to episode 216 of the Startup Diary podcast. I am joined by my very full co-host, Harrison. Good afternoon. And right now, you are about to listen to a fantastic interview we did with Timo Bolt, the CEO of Gusto. Now, we just wanted to just outline the fact that I've previously tried Gusto. This isn't a sponsored show, but one of my goals on this podcast is to document what we're doing along with the co-host, mm-hmm. pull on all our experiences so you guys can avoid making the same mistakes we make all the time. But part of this as well is a learning curve for me. And selfishly, I want to learn from people that are far more down their career. So we got Timo onto the show. but So we can actually really dig into his product, his service, as well as his backstory. Harry went through the actual Gusto experience. Yep. You got it delivered. Yep. Cooked the meals. Yep. Did all that good stuff. Yep. And guys, this is not a sponsored show. so It we could be, be sponsored though. If you, if you <laughs> want to send food in a box every every week that's how cheap it can be (laughs) uh that's how cheap it can be guys you could just feed us and we are good to go but the reason we want to highlight it's not sponsored is because if it was a bad experience we'd highlight it if it's a good experience we tell you harry god's honest truth what do you think good or bad experience using gusto yep good uh i'll i'll skim through it basically all comes in a box pre-packed um Use something similar before it basically gives you recipes that you can then repeat in the future because you get to keep the how-to's super simple pre-packed amounts it's just it's as easy as that and it's like it's just it's just helpful like i say it's a recipe for life is the way i see it that's so a cool now, phrase so now we've got is that a gusto cook- phrase or is that not that i'm aware of but okay. we we've got <laughs> trademark that we've got uh, <laughs> tm <laughs> um we've got a cupboard in the kitchen that's got about i think eight or nine different one of these cars now so whenever we want to do a meal that we think you know what let's spice it up a bit pull out one of these cards and away you go with a, with a recipe cool so. and and guys this this show for me was uh hugely inspirational i hope you get a lot from it we'd love to hear your follow-up questions and more 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 importantly for me is did you enjoy this type of show do you want us to see more interviews with guys like this. I know there's lots of shows out there where they interview successful people, but we wanted to do a different slant on this. We want to make sure that we really drill in to the journey of that sort of zero founder, entrepreneur, CEO. There's a lot of different stages in there and we try and really tackle it from a ground level up compared to just talking about the success of the business with rose-tinted glasses. On that note, enjoy this fantastic interview with Timo Bolt. Hey guys, Adam here from the Startup Diary podcast. We have Timo Bolt, CEO of Gusto. Timo, thanks very much for joining us on the mics. Thanks so much for having me. Nice to meet you. Same with yourself. Now, just for the people in the audience that are listening that are not yet familiar with Gusto, I want to throw it straight over to yourself. Can you give us the elevator pitch about what Gusto does? Gusto makes your life easier, better, and more healthy um, by letting you choose uh, from 30 recipes on a weekly basis. Food then gets delivered to your door all across the UK, free delivery, uh, and ingredients arrive pre-proportioned, so there's absolutely no food waste. So you can then focus you know, on cooking healthy, delicious, tasty meals on a weekly basis, uh, enjoying more time with your family, and eating a much more kind of balanced diet. See, this is wrong of me, but jealousy is already kicking in. I guess that comes with practice. I'm five years into my business and I'm still trying to get an elevator pitch as succinct as that. So just- You're being kind. (laughs) We'll see if you still say that at the end of the interview. I hope you do. (laughs) 
<laughs> so just to set the scene, when me and Harry have been looking through your background, what we've sort of established is sort of three core stages of your career, Timo. One, previously in finance, working in a hedge fund, then moving into becoming an entrepreneur. And then the third part of that, as I phrase it, is becoming the CEO and then scaling the business up. So the way that we wanted to position this interview, because a lot of our audience are either in a job, thinking about leaving it, or in those early stages of building a business, we want to split it into like two core parts. One, how did you move from finance into becoming an entrepreneur? And then secondly, how did you take that into becoming the CEO of the company and scaling up? How does that sound? Sounds fantastic. Makes perfect sense. It's a, it's a really great way to look at it, I think. Yeah, so the, the first question I have for you, Timo, really, is uh, where did you get the courage to go from working in the city at a hedge fund um, to working in the kitchen alone trying to build Gusto? <laughs> Again, I think you're being kind. Courage um, is a big, big word. Uh, you know, I, I back then probably was naive, um, thinking <laughs> this is very doable um, and, and an easy one um, to do. No, I mean... Um, I always had this enormous passion for entrepreneurship. Uh, I started a small company at university, tiny company, but lots of fun, lots of learnings. Um, and then I love food. I love cooking. I love quality ingredients. Um, so I really, really enjoy traveling and experiencing different cuisines. Um, so to be honest, you know, back in my hedge fund days, I simply looked for an opportunity to combine my big passions uh, and then at the same time, I didn't have, you know, kids, I, I didn't have a mortgage. Yeah. So I felt like um, it's a fantastic time. If I don't do it now, I'll, you know, I'll regret it forever. So I kind of jumped from 100 hours working in a hedge fund and very high salary to no salary, which is fantastic motivation. Um, and still working 100 hours, but on something I truly, truly enjoyed and was massively passionate about. And, and and just on that, Timo, one thing that, and you can tell me, Adam, bit personal, sod off. Did did you manage to build yourself up a buffer to allow you to give yourself that privilege of having three, six, 12 months of trying to get the right idea before you started the business? Or was it a case of you quit the salary and all of a sudden you felt the hunger instantly to sort of, I actually need to validate this business very quickly, get some money in the door and grow? Yeah, I, I literally, I mean, like the day after or the day um, of me quitting my job, I had, you know, the first interviews with chefs. And, and so I like jumped straight into the cold. Um, and um, I, I didn't back then have like a, a super clear business plan, if I'm honest, I had an idea, I had a couple of, you know, thoughts, um, but I didn't fully understand what I was getting into. I just felt like if I don't do it fully, if I don't fully commit, I will never ever do it. Um, so I felt the strong urge to just, you know, jump ship and fully concentrate on building Gusto. Um, and in hindsight, I'm, I'm hugely glad I did. I think it's enormously hard um, to work, you know, long hours whilst kind of flashing out your business model and, and testing some of the assumptions. I just felt like I had to go all in. Uh, that's awesome. And, and as you mentioned, doing 100 hours at a hedge fund, can I just ask, running the business and starting that out, what level of motivation, how did you feel differently when you are doing 100 hours working for somebody else? And I understand performance relates to, to revenue or money in your bank when you're working at the hedge fund. But how did you find those 100 hours? Because I have no doubt that you either did the same or more when you started Gusto. How, <laughs> how, did, that, how did that make you feel? Did you find that you were just um, the same level of commitment went into one job to the other? Or was there a different level of motivation or attitude towards the hours that you were working? 
I think it's life changing. Um, I did enjoy my days in the in the hedge fund world. I learned a ton. But if you do something you're truly passionate about and, and you know you believe in, you, you have impact on people's life, and your mission is to reduce food world, um, sorry, food waste um, in the world, which is one of the biggest challenges we have in the UK. I think um, you're probably like 10x more motivated to make it work. Um, plus, not having a salary helps. Plus, seeing your bank account on a daily basis and seeing cash going going out um, is enormously motivating because um, you know there is a shelf life. <laughs> so, uh, so was was solving the food waste always? Has that always been the mission of Gusto when you were coming up with the idea, or did you just see um, kind of a gap in the market and then try and fit Gusto around around that? Yeah, I know that that was always the mission from day one. Um, I, I very simply thought on, a, on an extremely personal level, I kind of applied three filters. The first one was, you know, I want to have fun. Life is too short. And in my, my head, having fun means working with exceptionally bright people and people I really like. And then I felt like, you know, I want to constantly grow and develop and learn. I'm too young to stop learning. So that was the second filter. And then the third one is I, I really wanted to do something good. Um, I like food uh, and I have a massive passion for cooking. But at the same time, it needed to have purpose and mission. It needs to make the world a little bit better, you know, with every single box we would sell. Um, so that from the early days on kind of was was part of the idea, yeah. Yeah, and I can I can agree to uh, a lot of the things you just said there. Uh, the fact that you can recycle almost everything that's in the box. Um, I try and recycle everything anyway. I'm not. It, some of it gets rejected at the bin, but that's a, for a, a different story. Um, so, so when you came up with the idea and you wanted to kind of, uh, well, you wanted to introduce it to people that have never experienced this before because you were the first of its kind, the first food in a box delivery service. Um, like how, how did how did you validate the market uh, if there's no one else in that space already that you can see is already kind of is occupying that same same share? Yeah, and, and no one back then believed that there was a market for food in a box. People thought it's it's a ridiculous idea. Um, no one needs it. It doesn't solve a problem. So um, it did for the first couple of years. It, it massively felt like we are. Um, you know, running against the wall, it's it's super uphill. The mountain to climb is, is enormous. Um, and then I think over over time, we you know we gained customers who loved the proposition and who sent us enormously passionate emails saying, "Hey, you guys are changing my life. You know, you're helping me to be a better parent. Um, you're making my life more healthy." So I think I think what what really really kind of motivated us in the beginning is is the level of feedback from real customers. There are always tons of haters telling you don't quit your job, you know, play it safe. This is a stupid idea. And I think you to some extent you just got to be you got to shut out the noise and and you you have to force yourself to accept rejection and live, you know, with the reality of there always being haters who just don't want you to succeed. Um, and luckily, customers really loved the proposition and, and kept on buying. So that was fantastic. 
Timo, just just like, just to jump in there is one thing that you just said hugely resonates with me. It's it's those early customers <clears throat> that when they're telling you the impact you're making on their life. And just to throw a little story that happened to us recently, we had our Christmas due last year. We had 50 of our community come and join us. And one guy mm. pulled me aside and said, listen, because of the services you offer, you're now paying my mortgage. And I had the confidence to go and have a third child, which mm-hmm. I wanted to, wanted to be able to do for a while. So it's those stories for me that hugely motivate us day to day of what we do in the business. Wow. Yeah. That's an amazing story. That's awesome. I wanted, I wanted to just jump in when you asked, when you mentioned those first customers and I understand sort of there are obviously going to be those haters. And I read, read a lot of articles online that says if people agree with your idea straight away, then it's probably not pushing the boundaries enough. You need to have that, yeah, yeah. that, that sort of contrast. But when you were actually going out to find those first customers, actually, let me jump in and just take it one step back because me and Harry had a really interesting conversation when his first Gusto box arrived. Mm. And it was, hold on, there's a there's a box of food in front of us. <laughs> and to get that delivered, Gusto needed food, they needed distribution, they they needed a website, they needed technology. Can I just ask, when you first started, how did you go about actually piecing those puzzles together? <laughs> because I know the listeners of the show, that's such a massive, when they look at your company, they're going to think that is such an impressive operation. What did it look like in day one? And I would love to sort of go back to that stage and see exactly what you were doing back then. Yeah, again, I think you're being kind. I think, you know, on the one hand, it looks impressive. On the other hand, it's, I mean, wow, it's like the most complicated business model you can possibly enter into. What have I possibly done? Um, and so so in hindsight, I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I was naive back then. And I thought, um, you know, I, I have no clue about logistics, website, tech. I'll figure this one out um, by listening to people who are much smarter than I am and, and more experienced. Um, so in the first kind of, you know, 12 to 24 months, um, I did every single part of what we do. I took, um, photos on my iPhone. I cooked recipes. Mm-hmm. I was the customer care team. Customers would call me at 11 PM at night to ask where their boxes. Um, I hand delivered boxes to Oxfordshire, um, on a train, taking boxes I on a train, which was so ridiculous. Much. Um, and you know, we, I mean, I started in my living room, um, and I went to the market myself in the morning and it was, it was completely crazy. And it's, it's very hard for me to appreciate how much the world has changed between today and back then. It's just absolutely insane and mind blowing. Um, but yeah, no, good fun. Good fun. Lots of happy uh, memories. No, it, it sounds it. And, and to be honest, just hearing that just honestly makes me smile. Some serious. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. So just just on that note, and the way I was going to take that initial question is, where did you actually find your first customers that weren't friends, family, or people that you knew? How did you actually get that first customer to buy into what you guys were trying to sell? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I, I think this has been like probably the hardest thing in the beginning, apart from then fulfilling boxes and <laughs> delivering them. But um, we literally went um, onto the street, handing out flyers, you know, wearing aprons. Um, we had a bunch of interns. We did like competitions who can sign up the most people. I think, you know, the, the winner signed up like one person per day. So it was like the, the most heartbreaking, you know, <laughs> the toughest thing in the world. We just we had absolutely ugly flyers. We didn't invest any money in design. Um, the printing quality was awful. I think people just thought we we're completely dodgy people. Um, <laughs> so, 
you know, but, but we learned a ton. And every hour you talk to five people and they gave you feedback and they did say, oh, I love this. I don't like this. And so I think in the first year, interacting with customers on the street almost like every single day, seven days a week was massively powerful. Um, my wife and I did um, every weekend we would do events um, and, you know, she would do pasta, um, pesto um and and pasta kind of to give out samples and uh it was such hard physical work but people did engage and then you know we got another customer that guy that referred someone he bought 10 boxes in the first two months uh and told all his neighbors and so like it, it really kind of started from tiny 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 numbers i think in week 10 12 we still had like four five six deliveries per week um, and then it maybe scaled to a hundred after a year, but it, it was like really, really seriously small in the beginning. And, and was there anything that you were doing back then that you physically can't do now just down to scale that allowed you have to have those interactions and then start changing the product around that, that sort of level of feedback. I know you said there was people face to face, giving flyers out, but at what point did you implement that back into the business? And would you say that was sort of fundamental to helping you guys actually get to that? We all hear it, that product market, product market fit state. The philosophy between back then and today hasn't changed. So we're still, you know, listening to customers incredibly careful. I'm obsessing about customer reviews, you know, customer care interactions, all this stuff. But today we obviously have amazing people working on this. You know, we have better tools. We have um, amazing systems that kind of, you know, um, show you the trends of what's happening and show you statistics and data um visualizing everything pushing it to your phone and so i think the level of sophistication has changed massively but we're trying to be um as close to the customer as we were back then and our entire product roadmap is pretty much driven by net promoter score insights so on a weekly basis we get you know deep feedback um incredibly rich feedback from customers that then kind of um, filters into the prioritization process and drives our our strategy it's um, so, so refreshing for me to hear you talk about how even at this scale you have such a passion down to what one customer is saying um because to be honest that's the culture that we're trying to foster here at our business so it's great to hear that from from our small team of 10 when you get to 500 person company you can still for, sort of force that culture onto the company and bring people in that believe in that on that note, one thing I just wanted to now sort of transition into is you've sort of validated the products, you you hit the streets, you delivered boxes, which I just truly, <laughs> I, I generally do. And then if you look at the history of the funding of Gusto, you've done a fair few rounds since 2013, as you've understood, you've got market adoption and you want to scale that opportunity. In terms of convincing your first customer to buy the box, I, I think we, we understand now how you did that. When you're speaking to investors, what are the how did that go? Because like September 13, you went and raised about half a million dollars. And then fast after that, you did a $2 million round. So for me, when I look at that, I was interested to know, one, how did you close that round um, mm. when you're at such an early stage with such a new sort of product? And then secondly, what was the reason for that $2 million round fairly quick after? Was it because the product market fit wasn't there or you actually had adoption and were ready to try and scale it nice and fast? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and it, it does feel like twenty years ago, if I'm <laughs> honest, um, and a, and a different life. Um, 
I, I sometimes look back at the presentations we delivered back then, and I mean, they, they today look ridiculous. Um, so on day, you know, five of Gusto's life, we had this like super slick kind of, you know, this is what, what we want to build. And obviously we missed every single number on that page. And we never, ever achieved what we would say we would. And the plans have changed, you know, a thousand times. Um, but I, I, I do think um, we really put a lot of thought into it back then. And even though the assumptions were, were all wrong, I do think it gave people the confidence that we deeply think about what we do. And um, what really, I think, helped in the early days is, you know, I personally don't know what high standards in logistics or customer care or technology look like. But I had this huge epiphany um, of realizing that if you ask amazing people, if you ask world-class people to help you and have a coffee and explain this to you, you very quickly understand what high standards um, by function are. And this, okay. this then helps you to integrate it into your thinking and to really kind of set the bar extremely high and to hire people you know, who hit this bar and exceed the bar. And, and I think this thinking gave investors massive confidence that you know, we were humble and and you know self-aware of of us not being amazing guys who, who know it all but us kind of you know figuring this out by listening to people who have done this and having an ability to build you know deep relationships with world-class industry leading people in every single function um it kind of almost gave us the credentials despite not really having them um, and, and I think it de-risked the business um, from the outside perspective. And then the other question, yeah, I mean, like we had, we had massive market adoption um, in kind of after like year one. And um, we needed to professionalize our operations, our supply chain, our systems, our technology. Um, you know, back then we had one single server in Devon. Uh, maintained by one guy and the server was in the basement on a chair so in case you know they're being flooding <laughs> the server wouldn't be killed but like i mean the level of risk was insane so um so we we very quickly felt like okay this is quite complex we have to invest serious money to de-risk the business and scale it um or else we just can't fulfill the demand that's coming through the door uh, perfect yeah really appreciate you tackling both those questions it sounds like what your investors were saying is we believe in the jockey over the horse in that situation would you think that's like a fair summary yeah i think i think that makes sense i think people backed the passion and the excitement and you know the hands-on mentality to fix problems rather than anything else rather than real numbers no that's brilliant and you, you've mentioned in uh, some previous interviews that uh, money was raised to help build a moat around the business can you just explain to me and the listeners uh, in terms of how you think about building that moat around Gusto? Is it purely a land grab operation now where it's you're trying to acquire customers fast because there's that validation in the market? Or do you find yourself investing into more into the infrastructure to make the whole user, user experience a bit more streamlined? How do you balance those two? So um, I think overnight success takes 10 years. And I think that um, it's not a land grab market. I think some of the people, you know, in the wider market are throwing money at acquiring customers at very high rate. That's totally not our strategy. Our strategy is to completely obsess about the customer, to try to figure out what's true in 10 years, what's true today, and then execute against those three, four, you know, seismic ideas that will really kind of build something exceptional. 
Now, the challenge is that that means I need to build um, tech and data and automation capabilities that help me deliver against my 10-year vision. So, you know, it takes a few years to start seeing compounding benefits from our long-term strategy. But if you build a strategy, which, which no one else is applying in the world, then one day you wake up and you, you have built some kind of castle and there's a moat and the moat is incredibly wide and it will take, you know, five to 10 years for anyone else to copy what you've built. Um, so that's, that's at least kind of the theory behind this. Um, so total customer obsession, total long-term focus, and then total kind of prioritization of um, customer uh, or capabilities that can deliver amazing value propositions to customers. So I, I for, firstly love the way you've explained in terms of how you guys see it on such a long-term horizon. Um, I think la- later on, uh, I would like to just dig into how you get investors on board to have that that degree of long thinking on such a long term when money's going into the business. But Harry's literally just put his hand up uh, internally to ask a question that was uh, yeah, something that was previously covered. Yeah, I, ju- I just made a note here. Uh, Timo, you're saying how if, if you just go to the people with the world-class talents or the skills that they've got, they're the ones like you can you can go for a coffee with them and ask them questions and they'll 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 get you thinking in a different way that you've never thought before uh how would someone go around speaking to these world-class people as you, as you put it though like is is that necessary do you do you already have a pre-established network of these people that you can you could already uh, tap into or is there something that you were you found someone that you knew would be able to kind of shed some light on a similar situation that they've obviously succeeded in were you just kind of hunting them down how did you go about uh, having a with these guys? <laughs> well i i think you like it's it's amazing how generous people are with their time and how much people want to help other people yeah. so um so 10 years ago i sent um five christmas cards to people completely out of my league um so one of them was el goa and um like completely ridiculous right like there's no reason in the in the entire world why el goa should ever spend time with me um, however, I've now met El Gore six times and I had dinner with him and, and other people, not just him, you know, um, five out of the six times and we had a coffee once and it's just, I, so it's mind blowing. And it's, to be honest, like the only thing I did, I asked at the right time and for whatever weird reason, he had like a little bit of time whenever he was in London and he said like, yeah, do you want to tag along? I've got those 10 people for dinner you can join. I mean, I, I'm sure not, not even him writing this, his EA kind of kindly um, send it. But I mean, like to me, this was like absolutely pivotal. I was mind blowing because it built huge confidence in me that people are incredibly generous with their time and they there are generally nice people out there and if you ask five people and one comes back and says yeah sure let's meet um you know it's mind-blowing and it changes your entire thinking so um you know then i i pretty much went on and emailed 100 people (laughs) and i met like you know 10 to 20 people and i realized like wow um the bigger gusto gets the more you know um the bigger the success rate because more and more people want to have coffee so so whenever i'm now looking for any new role i i literally have somebody um at gusto uh, our amazing chief of staff puts together the names of like 20 world class people in this market or jobs back um and then we use my linkedin profile to literally just shotgun them uh, a message 
And within hours, at least a handful of them come back saying like, yeah, sure, you know, why not have a coffee? Let's have a call. I'm happy to help. Um, so it's really, really mind blowing. I strongly recommend anyone to just try it. You know, the worst thing is they don't come back to you. The second worst thing is they say no, but it doesn't really matter as long as you, you know, you see it a bit as a numbers game and don't feel personally offended. I think anyone listening to this show that gets to this point, that is probably yeah. one of the best nuggets of advice that that I've I've heard, to be honest, because I think t- too many times we get in our own head and we make excuses on behalf of other people. This guy won't reply because he's too, too busy. But what you're saying is if you don't ask, you don't get, and people are extremely generous. So put yourself out there. Look, absolutely love that bit of advice. Yeah, it's, um, it's, you know, no one, no one has ever asked me how many people have not, you know, talked to you or, or, you know, returned your message. Everyone is always just excited <laughs> by the people you get to meet. So <laughs> at the end of the day, and you know, in, in the world of, of the internet, it has like almost no cost to reach out to people. Um, so it's, it's really amazing. Highly recommend it. Super fun. No, I, get, I get that completely. And after I get off this interview, I'm definitely going to be making a list of the top people <laughs> that I want to connect with. Uh, was, who's, who's on your list? Pardon? Who's on your list? To, to be honest, right now, um, there, are, there are few people that I want to meet from a business perspective and a lot of people that I'd like to meet from an advisory mentor perspective. I think there's people, and this is probably a well-known person, but there's people like, Gary Vaynerchuk that I think is building a very similar business mm. model to what we are, where he's inventing an engine. So expert trades is a machine that will allow manufacturers of building products to get products to market even faster. I think take out mm. the, take out what he does on social, the actual engine that he's building over at VaynerMedia. I would love to dig into that and understand how he's making that work. Um, he would probably be on the top of my list as well as people that run services. Actually, one of the people that I met recently was uh, the CEO of Rated People. That was a really interesting conversation because they're in a similar space. I, oh, she's she's yeah, great, Celia. yeah. Um, is it yeah, Celia? Celia? Yeah, yeah. Um, just an absolute fantastic person in terms of, um, I think one of the biggest lessons that I had is even with people in the same space, because technically we could potentially be running after the same customer, is the level of openness and support you can also get from your support your competitors, and I use that in air quotes, because they understand the market's big enough and one conversation will not risk your ability to execute. I was just genuinely shocked Mm -hmm. by the level of openness I got from Celia. And that sort of educated me to the fact that it's not a binary decision. It's not a winner takes all. And I need to start actually building Mm -hmm. my personal network. It's something that I'm very, very poor at, but I would like to get better at. Yeah, I know. It's... um... Um, and I think it's it's always shocking how people like Celia, you know, if you ask her for advice, hey, Celia, you know, who's been on a similar journey, she probably can point you to five other people. And um, she doesn't mind making an introduction because she probably enjoys the conversation. And then all of a sudden, it kind of snowballs. And you know, there, there are more people in the network than you can actually physically meet. And um, yeah. 100%. I think, I think super, the biggest risk that I've done and the mistake that I've made is as I've grown the business, uh, and we're, we're still a very small business, there's 10 people in the team, but I became very insular in terms of just looking after what we're doing day to day. And I've, for the last three years, I've mm. really forgotten to sort of try and build my personal network because, because I'm just focusing on the day to day too much. But now I'm starting to think because I'm trying to build this long term 100 year business, I need to start building those relationships <laughs> now because they don't come overnight. So it's amazing timing from you mentioning that and just reaching out to people. It's going to stop me making excuses and start reaching out to people. Uh, so selfishly, that's like perf- the perfect kick that I needed on the show. Just just to pull it back to you, Mo, in terms of where you are with Gusto and the the growth that you've gone through, 
I'm super interested to know that when you look back over the growth, what were the pain points in the business? Were there any points that as it scaled up, you basically needed to break the business and rebuild it? Or how did you think about going from, so right now we're at 10 people. I feel like when we get to 15, 20 people, there's internal processes that need to change, but I'm really scared of that because I love the culture that we've got. How did you tackle that as you scaled the business? Yeah, um, so so we now operate across um, four sites um, and the complexity of, of having close to 400 people um, is, is enormously high and it's completely different than the first two years when I, you know, I, I sat next to everyone in one single building and it was super, super easy. And you didn't really need to talk about what behaviors you care about and what your values are because everyone knew anyways. And, you know, it's so small. Um, and that's, that's powerful, right? Like everyone being aligned. I think, um, there comes a point in time where you simply have to kind of, um, spill out what you care about and, you know, go on an offsite, go to a nice hotel or go, go just somewhere new and be inspired by the, by the surroundings and like plot down kind of what, what you honestly care about and what you value in people and, you know, what is it that kind of makes you and your business successful? Um, that's quite unique to you guys, maybe like some weird quirks, um, that only you guys do. And I think, I think kind of then distilling this and having the rigor of writing down what you care about and having values that, you know, you can hire against. And if you hire somebody, you give them an onboarding booklet and it says, Hey, you know, this is what we care about. And here are five stories, how we live it. Um, we, for example, give ownership awards. So I, I aspire for everyone in the company to act like an owner, not somebody I need to hold accountable. I want people to feel like, you know, they really own their part and, and I want them to be passionate about it. So we have ownership awards. You know, we celebrate people who have um, epitomized our ownership principles. Um, so I think, I think kind of like shifting focus from you taking out everyone for coffee once a week and everyone having lunch to um, to sitting down and writing this down and then thinking about translation mechanisms so that every single person in the company is exposed um, to your values and, and behaviors you care about um, is super, super, super important. And you'll get it wrong a couple of times and you write them down and then you change them again and but I think that's um, that's that's kind of like the starting point of scaling any culture, um, being honest to yourself and, and yeah, writing and I, it down. I think, and again, I just want to dig in. This is selfishly for me. I'm basically asking for your advice <laughs> as if we're going for coffee right now. This is me just hacking that world-class invite. We just got you on the show. At what point, at what point <laughs> did that happen for you at Gusto? And when should I start thinking about it? Is it a point in terms of headcount? Is it a point in terms of when I feel something breaking? What triggered it for you? Um, it's a great question. And, and for example, multiple markets may trigger this, um, or expansion or bringing in very, very senior people. I think before you hire, you know, um, people with 20 years of experience, um, I think you really got to be honest with yourself and, and, and get yourself to, to this discipline. Uh, but in our case, I think the biggest trigger has been headcount growth. So we went to 20 people, 40 people, 50 people. Um, and it does become tougher. It's still manageable. You still know everyone incredibly well, but it does get harder. And then I think at a hundred people, there's a breaking point 
um, especially when you operate across multiple um, offices and locations. Um, but yeah, I mean, try it. It could be like a fun team activity. Everyone, you know, writes down how they perceive the culture. You see what the common denominator is. You know, 70% of what, what every, every person in your team writes down is probably exactly the same. So you might be able to actually do it fairly fast and then there's lots of stuff you guys aren't aligned on and maybe it's a personal quirk rather than part of the culture and then you can you can have a very high quality discussion with the people around the table um it's super fun i actually really really enjoy this part and and, and thinking about what you've built and what you care about um, because as you scale a business you're so focused on the doing and just getting shit done it's it's actually really hard to you know, reflect and step back. Um, but it's very powerful. And, and the last, and the last question I just want to fire over to you, Timo, because I'm fully respectful of your time is that transition of, uh, and I use the term at the beginning of the show, entrepreneur to CEO. When did you think you needed to start doing that? When you, you personally had to stop getting shit done in terms of the day to day, moving things about to managing people to become the CEO. Are you still on that journey? Have you made that transition or when did you start it? So I, the, our business is quite complex and we got to the point where we had, you know, more than 100 people working for us and um, we needed processes, schedule of authority to delegate decision-making power. Um, I needed a team to make decisions versus me making decisions. Uh, and to empower a team requires you to think about mandate, purpose of the team. What do you, you know, what are the decisions you decide? What do they decide? Um, and so on, who's on the team, composition, da da da. Um, so I think I think I I had to take a very purposeful decision. It got too much, and I, I realized, you know, I needed people with 20, 25 years of leadership experience to build something world class and to get them in. I needed to delegate power, and to delegate power, I had to somehow build a leadership team. Um, you know that that brings stuff to the table. I'm not I'm not adding at all. So um, I very purposefully kind of went through this design of of a leadership team, um, and and I selected people not just for functional knowledge or results, but for behaviors they live on a daily basis, um, and for for ability to communicate and inspire and to hire other people. Um, and I think that has paid huge dividends. Uh, it's working very well. I then started focusing on building the management team under the leadership team. Um, and I love every single person sitting on that management team. They're all absolutely amazing. But it takes a ton of time to give them you know, confidence and, and for them to understand what decisions they can take versus the founding uh, CEO and so on. So it's, it's, um, it's an exciting journey. It's a huge opportunity. Uh, and, and to some extent now, it's a necessity. I get noise from left and right, top down all day long, and I could easily drown, which means I don't focus on what has impact and what actually matters. So I'm, I need to be ultra disciplined nowadays versus, versus four years ago. Um, and that's only getting getting harder. Um, but yeah, good fun. It's it's been a really fascinating journey. You know, it one hundred percent sounds like it. And I, Harry knows I'm more than happy to get someone on the mic and give them a hard time. But honestly, <laughs> you, the way that you talk about the business and the the openness you've given on the show today is an absolute inspiration. Harry, is there anything else that you would like to wrap up before we let this man go? 
yeah, I think we'd be foolish not to ask just for one bit of advice, Timo, for, for anyone that's listening, uh, that's thinking about starting up or in the beginning stages of a startup, is there any advice that you would give to our listeners that they can take away from today? Just follow your passion. Do what you really deeply care about. Um, it, don't, don't ever be motivated by making money or being greedy or copying something that you think you know, will make you rich in, in 18 months. I think, I think to be on this journey, and we all know this is incredibly tough, and you know, there, there are lots of sleepless nights, and every, every second weekend you spend working, you just have to be enormously passionate about people and, and your mission. Um, if you don't have that, like don't don't even start. You know, search for the next idea. But uh, but yeah, passion and purpose is absolutely key. And then people. Timo, thank you so much for your time on the Start Diary podcast. We'll leave it there. Thanks again. Amazing. Thank you so much, guys. Really, really nice meeting you. Looking for the best gifts for everyone on your list? Kendra Scott has just what you need. Find jewelry for every style at an affordable price. From diamonds and genuine stones to the season's best trends, Kendra Scott jewelry is a gift that's sure to wow. You might even find a few things for yourself. Shop now at KendraScott.com and enjoy 15% off your order with code JOY15. Tis the season to give joy.